podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. You're back. We're back. Let's do this pod. Of course, this is the TMBA podcast. We're here to grow great location-independent businesses. And this episode is designed to help you do exactly that with some experiences from me and the boss man. We are just coming down from DC Austin 2019, where the boss man, myself, our entire team, and over 100 entrepreneurs got together over breakfast and talks and beers and tacos and meetups, and it was amazing. And I got this just list of so many things to implement and people to get back to. And thanks to everyone who made it out to join us at our fourth event in this amazing city. Over the next few weeks, Ian and I are going to share some of our reflections from this year's event. But first off, we wanted to talk about remote teams and remote team retreats because this was the first time Ian and myself pulled the entire team together in one location. We wanted to talk about how it went because before it was just the information we read on the internet that was in our heads and we actually implemented that information. We learned a lot of things about maybe what to do, what worked, what didn't work so well. And we're going to share all those things with you today. And as a bonus extra for anyone interested in a peek inside the boss man's man cave podcast recording studios, and as well as our reflections on the city of Austin itself for entrepreneurs, hang around after the bumper music at the end. But first, we want to talk about what prompted us or what inspired us to pull the entire remote team together, which is a global team for a two day retreat. For a little bit of clarity for those people that are listening, we had a business, sold it in 2015, had about 15 employees. Most of these people were located in San Diego in an office and in a warehouse. There was no reason for a retreat because everyone was centrally located. Since then, we've started to grow this new company, which includes the Dynamite Circle, which is our community for entrepreneurs, which includes the Tropical MBA, which is this podcast that you're listening to, and most recently, dynamitejobs.co which is our new recruiting service for virtual teams. right? And so we are quickly getting ourselves to the point where we actually have several full-time and part-time team members. All of a sudden, you look up and it's like, well, there's nine people here. We felt the need to have a team retreat. And Austin seemed like the perfect idea because we were all going to be here for our conference that we just got off, DC Austin. Well, let's back up, if you don't mind. I want to lay this out, but with one caveat. And this is a little bit like an old-school TMBA. We are going to present this information like these are how-to tips, but we don't really know what we're talking about. We have no idea. This is the only team retreat we have ever hosted, but I do think there's some value in it because so many of us have been in the situation where you've only read about something, you've only heard about it, and now all of a sudden it's up to you as the leader, as the entrepreneur to cook up a plan. So that's what we did. We're going to talk about what went right and what went wrong, and hopefully you can learn from it and grow a better remote team but let's just lay out the why at the top because there are some amazing things about growing a remote team. Number one, there's a lower cost structure. That's right. So most of the time these days, when you hire someone remotely, they're willing to work for less than if you hired somebody. 100%. And there's a lot of obvious reasons around that. One is that they have a cost structure that's different than a local person. And two, you have an opportunity that's maybe a little bit more interesting than a local opportunity. Number two, the team you're going to grow is ultimately more talented. That's right. So before, when we were hiring in San Diego, we were required to only hire people that were living in San Diego. And that's like a self-selecting group of people, right? <laughs> so instead of hiring the best marketing manager, we were forced to hire the best marketing manager in San Diego. Now, that barrier doesn't exist anymore. And finally, we believe building remote teams are more flexible and fun. This is obvious to me. I mean, an office is just okay. An office is just okay. And we're going to talk about what we think the diminishing returns of an office are in this episode. 
I don't think there's a single remote entrepreneur that I've ever met that hasn't at some point in a difficult moment in their business fantasized about wrangling everybody together and putting them back in an office. Certainly we have. We have fantasized about this. You know, it's like one of these things, like when you're in it, you think like this is the best way to do it because you're in it, right? And like you don't have much of a choice. So we're going to make this work. (laughs) And I was actually very skeptical and I, I still am in a lot of ways about the efficiencies of these remote teams, you know? One of the reasons why I'm getting less and less skeptical was because of this retreat that we had. Let's talk about the real challenges that we were facing as we see them. These are the challenges that we felt a team retreat could address. So the first challenge, Ian, is that people don't know each other. Straight up, they just don't know each other. This can be a real problem because businesses are not just about tasks, projects, strategies, all that. Your businesses are about the people that you're working with. And you know, you see all these like tips online and it's like, you know, share what you did the weekend in Slack and stuff like that. And frankly, it's like, I don't know if that helps me to get to know people all that well. And like, I don't know, given all the other Slack messages I'm getting, if that's really the priority. And I don't think it goes a long way to really getting to know who people are. Or it's a long, long process to figure out who somebody is by what they did last weekend through a photo. How many people have you followed on Instagram or whatever, and you meet them in real person, it's like, that is not who they are. I don't think it matters if you have a top-down organization where the information is coming from one or two people, or whether you have a relatively flat organization where the directives and information are coming from everyone. It's still very hard to get to know people in both organizations if you're not in the physical world. That's something that we've encountered many times. And so when we brought people together, It was interesting to see how those barriers kind of fell apart very fast, right? So people started explaining what they were working on. People started explaining who they were in real life and then also in the company. And we'll get to this in a little bit. But by the way, as the business owner, you know people way more than probably anybody else, right? And so take a few notches down from wherever you're at. That might be how two team members at different sides of the organization, they don't even have a reference point for who each other are. Right. The second challenge is this leads to siloing, is that it's very common, you know, you have to have iron tight processes to run a remote team. You got to know how to keep people productive, what they're supposed to be doing. Typically, this is where our focus is, but it leads to siloing. People are going to stay in their lane. Give you an example of this. Before you get people in a room together, a lot of times, like you said, people have no idea what the other person's working on or what the other person is even good at. A lot of times when you get people together, like, oh, wow, you're working on that, that aspect of that project. Oh, wow, you have this expertise. I'm working on this. Like, this is something that you could really help me out with. I had no idea that you were interested in that or that you're good at that. These are the kinds of conversations that are very difficult to have over email and Slack. Like, they just do not happen. They're almost like this serendipitous kind of situation where you have to get to know someone a little bit. You have to read them. You have to talk to them. And like, you just don't have these types of casual conversations over the internet. There's all kinds of opportunity there, right? And like, it it often doesn't come up when you have limited phone time in a remote team environment. So this leads to finally, which I think is one of my biggest concerns about remote teams, which is getting traction on big projects, big company initiatives, and moving on up. So I think one of the things that was very clear to me young in my career by being in an office and seeing 30 people there is you could get a sense for where everybody was at, what sort of different projects were happening in the building, and if you wanted to advance your career, where you could put some chips down, where you could invest some time and energy, where you could raise your hand and say, you know what, I'm willing to take on that. You look really busy right now. And in a remote team, when it's like, hey, you're here to do this, you're here to do this, I really wanted to create a space where the people on our team felt like they don't have to, but if they wanted to, like, hey, I can move on up. I can do more in this company. So when we talk about these things today, Dan, an office versus a virtual team, like I do think that there are some inherently good things about having an office. I do think that there are some advantages, so to speak. But I do think a lot of these things can be overcome in these virtual teams. One of the top 10 most powerful heuristics that gets repeated back to us every event that listeners of this show come to us, 
the corner office test. Yeah. And the corner office test suggests that if you're thinking about advancing your career, you look down at the corner office because that's where you're heading. That was really powerful. It was really powerful to know where those people were and what their days look like. When you do the corner office test, let's say it's sales, for example, you're a junior level salesperson and the person down the hall has a great view of the parking lot out of their office, right? And that's the person that you're aspiring to be. Dig. (laughs) What's interesting is like you actually get to hear the sales conversations that they're having. You get to hear their techniques and you really get to understand pretty quickly, if you're smart, like how to beat them or how to be just as good of a salesperson. You don't get that experience unless that person on your team with a virtual team is recording their calls and you're getting to listen to them. So it's one of the hacks, right? It's like, okay, if you have a sales team, like the senior level people have to record their calls so then the junior level people can learn from them. But that's not obvious. You have to build these types of things into your business. And I think like remote teams and the productivity of remote teams is so new that like even having this conversation feels a little bit weird. Okay, so we've laid out the why of remote teams, which I think most of the listeners of this show are nodding their head saying, heck yeah, my teams are going remote in the future. We also identified three challenges that we've faced. I'd actually be really curious if any listener of the show, they have other challenges with remote teams that they could point out to us. I'd be curious to hear what you guys are struggling with. Let's talk about three considerations that we had when we out lined this team retreat. And at the end, we're going to talk about some of the things that we think you know we could improve. So again, our framework is I'm reading about like Buffer and like Nathan Barry's ConvertKit and like all these really cool companies online that are showing photos of their team in tropical locations and stuff. And I'm thinking, that's my baseline. But what does it mean for us? Like what's our culture? What are we going to do? We had a speaker named David Hauser who gave a great talk at DC Austin, and he talked about the importance of defining your culture. And this is becoming a theme. This is an enormous opportunity for, especially for solopreneurs or small shops, to figure out how this is going to be bigger than you. And that was one of the biggest takeaways of this team retreat for us was just talking about a bit about what the company is all about, like what it means to be a part of the company. So one of the specific things that you pointed out, I'm going to steal this point right in front of your face. I thought this was great. You know, if you just had come in and worked for the Dynamite Circle for six months or whatever, it would be easy for you to assume that, you know, it's a group for private entrepreneurs. I'm not an entrepreneur. And so therefore, my job around here is to help out these people that are like a different class of person than myself. And What we walked away out of this meeting was thinking, that is not the distinction at all. That's not what this company does is create like haves and have nots. And there's actually a communal culture that we all participate in. And once that was clearly laid out, which is we help entrepreneurs grow great remote companies. And so that goes across our entire audience because you both need business owners and business growers. Like every great remote company needs great team players. And so now all of a sudden, what our company does is exactly what the whole team's participating in, which is we're a part of this whole thing together. It might sound like a small distinction, but what I found is that that's a very powerful distinction. Yeah, David Hauser started Grasshopper, which we used like way back in the day, 2008. It was basically a virtual phone system. Person dialed the number on your website and it went to your cell phone. This was like a game changer for us because it allowed me not to be in the office and some of our other employees too, to not have to be in an office with a landline. He later went on to found uh, Chargeify and his newest venture is Superfat, which is a little food pouch. So David, very accomplished dude. But what he talked about in this talk was company culture. And one of the things that I thought was interesting was when he came up with the company values, I think it was that grasshopper. It was like, these are the things that we believe in. These are the things that all of our employees believe in. These are the things that bond us together. When he came up with that, he said immediately he fired 11 people at his company because they didn't meet the structure of where their company was going and what their values were. And I just thought like, wow, that's super harsh, but also like really cool. Like one of those values as an example, so people can visualize is scrappy for one of his companies. There's like this value of like, you're going to be scrappy, you're going to be resourceful, you're going to pull it together. And there was like a little vignette of what it meant to be scrappy. 
And now you can see how it can follow that if everybody's sitting around the office and you're like pointing over to Paul and like Paul's not scrappy. Paul's out. Dude, look at the thing. It's scrappy. There's only five of them, you know? It's just one of these things that if you're a solopreneur, if you're a small shop, you know, you sit around and you think, is this really that valuable to define a company culture? That's the first thing that I thought before we did this exercise was like, ah, man, like, shouldn't we be like trying to get customers or shouldn't we be trying to, you know, make some money? But like, this is actually the foundation for which all those things happen. And that's why we feel like it's more important than ever to try and define your culture. You know, Dan, we did a little bit of this, I think, but we weren't as serious about it when we had the physical product company. We're selling valet equipment, like not sexy products, but we did have a mission statement and we did have values. And that's what tied people together because like although we're selling like boring products, like we were making a difference. Yeah. And if we didn't have that mission statement, I don't think people would have felt that way. And that mission is actually a real thing that you participate in. So, so many entrepreneurs come to us in person and they're complaining about why it's so hard to hire and people are dropping off and why don't people want to work for me and I can't keep anybody around. It's like, crap, you can't keep anybody around just because you clarified a task. People don't want to be taskmasters. They want to be involved in something cool and you have opportunity to sit down. Best part is you can do this stuff in a day. Sit down, define your culture, evolve it as you go. We learned a few things about our culture over the weekend, which is it's a bunch of learners. It's a bunch of voracious learners, which isn't everybody in the world, right? This is not everybody wants to be a voracious learner. One of the other frameworks that David offered in terms of defining your culture is this idea of I caught. So pointing out when team members are participating in your culture in a really exceptional way is a valuable process in any company. So you can say, I caught Ian being extremely helpful to a difficult customer. And here's the way he did that. And it's amazing how you know he can always turn a bad situation into something, a growth opportunity for both the customer and the company. That is a really powerful process. Now, all of a sudden, you get a sense of what individual team members are good at, how that behavior can innovate your culture itself. Like, Maybe that's who we are. Maybe we're the types of people that behave in that way when those sorts of challenges occur. And so I felt like that was a really interesting cultural exercise as well. So Dan, do you think it's important to define your culture before you go to your first meetup or team retreat? Or do you think it's important to define it while you're there? Is this the job of the founders or is this the job of the team? Yeah, that's a great question. In our case, I'll just share from my experience we had a mission statement. We had 10 principles, which I felt were pretty well honed, but not super useful because there's 10 of them and they're not stories and they're kind of complicated to remember. But when we leaned into those 10 and as a team talked about them, I do believe they're valuable. I just think they can be presented a little bit better. And yeah, we got great feedback on those principles. You could see what landed with people. You could see people bring new things to the table. And so I think we got to evolve that document. But my takeaway is that document's important. Don't be too cool to sit there and talk about it. A lot of us fall into this pattern of you just want to sit there with your revenue goals and your KPIs and your spreadsheets. All that stuff's important, but it's got to be married with why are we here? And so, yeah, I mean, that's my biggest takeaway, Ian, is... I'm not so sure it matters. It depends on the stage you are in the company, but this process matters. That's my takeaway. I'll answer it for myself. I think it does matter who defines the company culture. And I don't think it necessarily needs to be the founders of the company, but I do think it needs to be the people that are pushing the company forward every day in a meaningful way that also have hiring capabilities, that also have the opportunity to move the company in the direction that it's going to be going in. So I do think it matters who defines these things, but I don't necessarily think it needs to be the company founders. I think that's where this I caught process comes in handy because essentially our mission and our 10 principles, they came from having caught really smart people doing great things. And then all of a sudden you sort of commandeer that as like, hey, we should all behave like this. You know, We could all be a little bit more like that. So that's the first thing is to define this culture, whether you do it at the meeting, whether you do it before, it should have a critical role in your team retreat. Define your culture. Today's show is sponsored by dynamitejobs.co. It's our newest baby and target something we're passionate about here at the TMBA, helping your business succeed through growing amazing remote teams. 
And we know from personal experience just how hard it can be to find the right people. And that's why we've designed Dynamite Jobs to address that problem. So starting at as low as $200, we can help you find your next remote team member. And for $500, we'll handpick the best candidates using a pre-vetting process. We call it Wise Match. And it's designed to save you days, even weeks of your time determining the top ranking candidates for the role that you need. And for those of you seeking remote jobs, I urge you to register with us. It's completely free. I promise you we're not just the next job board. We want to work actively with you to identify ideal positions for your skill set. So whether you're looking to hire great people or whether you're one of those great people who feels that your skills are wasted in your current company and you want more freedom and flexibility in your life, check out dynamitejobs.co today. Number two out of three, determine and control costs. I know now we're taking, we started at the high level. Now we're going to go down to the low level because this was a big thing for me, Ian, is man, these are freaking expensive. Yeah. How are you going to make this work? Simple for me, I think. I mean, it depends on like how often you do this, right? We can talk about like the frequency of this, but I don't think it's uncommon to say it's going to cost you $1,000 a team member. Flight, hotel, I mean, it could cost even more than that. Here's the reason why I want to say that, because it could be scary, right? You have a 25-person team, $25,000, like, oh my gosh. When you quote out your team retreat, you're not going to be excited about the costs. Put it that way. It, the number's going to be scary, and it's not like you're putting into Facebook ads or you're putting it into a new team member. You're putting it into like hotel stays and plane tickets, which are just sunk costs. It's just you're writing a check, the money's out of the bank account. Well, let's talk about how you're saving money. Have you ever paid triple net on a building you don't own? Triple net being maintenance costs, rent, insurance, all that stuff. You don't have an office. You don't have any of that. Oftentimes, you're avoiding certain payroll taxes and state Oftentimes, you're avoiding that as well. So there are a lot of costs associated with having an office. Also, the people that are working in those offices, a lot of times, like I said at the beginning of this episode, they're making more than the people that are working for you virtually. But that doesn't mean that you should just then piss away profitability. I don't think that you should piss away profitability. And I don't think that you are pissing away profitability if you can find a way to make these retreats valuable. I think for us, our first one was valuable. I don't think that there was a price that you could put on it. You could say like, yeah, sure. You're going to spend $25,000. Coming out of it now, I think like it's great. Everybody understands the culture. Everybody can see what everybody else was up to. Super valuable. Right. So I don't know what's going to happen, Dan, on number five, number 10, I don't know if the costs are going to be justified, but certainly on the first one, it was. Let me try to impress you with a laundry list of cost-cutting options and to see which ones jump out to you. The first is you could test it virtually. Go through the, the whole system, the culture you create, the format you want to go through, do it virtually to start. Number two, you could rally around a project. So of course, do everything we already mentioned, but now all of a sudden, we're all here for one project that's going to move the business forward. We're going to collaborate. Number three is you could rally around an event. So do you have an industry event that the whole team would value from being around, maybe engaging with customers? So there's a way that you could find a parlay. We see this all the time, by the way, at our conferences, that the owners come to the conference and then their employees also come to be around that city. It's a good rallying point. 100%. You could fly to a low-cost area this is a pretty common one that I see online blogs. Honestly, not the one that excites me the most, but uh, certainly the one that seems most popular on the internet sphere right now. You could define a clear ROI for the meeting. Maybe there's a project. Maybe you're going to set up a boiler room and you're all going to get on the phone. Or I remember a talk that Noah Kagan gave at DCBKK three years ago where the whole point of the talk was like, look, we're not leaving this room until you all make X amount of money. Mm -hmm. And he took a shot at it. And in a lot of people's cases, it made a lot of sense. There's no reason why you couldn't open up your meeting and say, we're going to have one working day. The first third of the day is going to be about cutting costs in this business. We're going to call all our suppliers and ask for discounts. The second part of the day is going to be all about finding ways to double down on our current clients. And you walk out of there and you're like, man, we just made our money back. Yep. There's no reason why you couldn't do that. And so which of those options jumps out to you as the most intriguing, Ian? Ooh, good question. I think rallying around an event all of us, we have these teams and we can become a bit insular. It's a good idea to get out there and see what everybody else is doing. Maybe go to a conference. It's a good excuse, I think, to rally around something like that. 
personally, thinking back to our physical products company, the idea of bringing everybody out to a key conference where we all get to meet our customers and have fun together socially, it feels like a really exciting thing. A lot more fun than going to the conference alone. It is. Also, I'd say this, Dan, is like you're super engaged. After you've just gotten off a conference, like number one, you're tired, but you're engaged because you've been talking to your customers. Hopefully, you've sold a bunch of products. You see the problems. Yeah, you're like really into it. So I think, you know, one of the things that typically works there, and we've done this before, is you talk for a little bit about the conference, you know, for an hour or two, and then you cut it off and you say like, look, we're not going to talk about this conference anymore. We're going to actually talk about the future and what our team is up to. So we've already talked about defining your culture. We've talked about determining and controlling costs. And finally, we're going to talk about determining your format. I think one of the biggest challenges for us was basically just like kind of pulling it out of thin air. Like, I don't know. I've never done one of these things. What do you do at them? So let's talk about some of the things that you can do and what we've seen around the Dynamite Circle community and online and things, because this is what a lot of people are doing nowadays. And it was fun to dip our toes into it. So in terms of format now, I've seen a lot of destination retreats. I've seen a handful of virtual, but I haven't heard so much about virtual retreats, like doing a conference call for X amount of hours, where it has more of a retreat feeling where you know, most like all hands on deck calls that are about like moving something forward. A key part of a retreat, I think, is stepping back, you know, and allowing people to reflect and to share. That's not typically what you would do on a conference call. We've seen a lot of embedded retreats, which would be like, hey, we're all going to be in this city for these weeks or month. Can you get there? And then finally, we've seen a lot of this tagging on to an event approach where you identify something important in your business. And you say, you know what? Everybody from the warehouse people to the CEO is going to go to this event and we're all going to soak in the vibe of our industry. Now, to me, a lot of this is going to depend on costs and culture. Mm-hmm. It depends on the culture. Like if you have a lot of people that work at your company that are married, have to answer the phone, have children. Yeah. Very hard. Totally. That's not to say it can't be valuable. I mean, personally, I was very bullish on our team coming to Chiang Mai, Thailand after our DCBKK event in October because I did get so much value out of being embedded with the team for a week and working on a day to day basis in a cafe or in a restaurant. But, you know, for me, I think the 80-20 of it is getting people together for two or three days. I really think that that's where you're going to get the most work done of these key challenges that we outlined. By the way, like I'm going to say like this embedded thing, like one of the key challenges, we didn't write down helping people be productive. Like I don't feel like being productive is necessarily an enormous challenge in a remote company. So you know, this idea of you got to sit there every day with people and work together, surely it's valuable, but... It's not the 80-20 in my mind. Well, it's interesting, right? Like that's where the diminishing returns of an office sets in. So it's like the first day or two, like everyone's together and you're like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. We're getting so much done. We're communicating. Like I really understand this person. Like day 14, you're basically sitting in an office and you're like, hey Dan, what's up, man? Yeah, cool. All right. Got my Put face. my headphones I got, on. I got to work. I got to work, right? And that's essentially what the office becomes. I was thinking about that because you were saying like this critique of the open office format. Yeah. It's way not productive. But if you want to figure out where the corner office is, who, what the personalities are involved, it's super productive. So the critique doesn't hit these sort of core things that we're talking about, these core challenges. And so I totally agree with you. Like the 15th day I'm sitting across from you, I'm like, dude, I get it. You know, I'd rather be in my PJs back home in my apartment <laughs> exactly. with my big monitor, you know? Exactly. So it's interesting to think about, and we haven't figured this out yet, but the frequency of these events, how long they last, where they should happen. These are all good questions to be asking yourself. Well, let's just say what we're doing. So a few more things in determining your format. You talked about rhythm. So how often are you going to do these? What we've come across is we're going to do two a year. And then we're going to attempt to do a virtual version every quarter. So that would make for two in person, two virtual. And ours are around an event. So we have an event in Austin every year. We're very lucky for that. Yeah. And we have an event in Bangkok. and so. I think for us, the decision to do based around events is kind of natural because it's uh, where the team already is. So there's some cost savings for us there. And then I think we'll explore this virtual option on the quarters where we're not in person. Same as it ever was. Same as it ever was. Same as it ever was. A few more things. 
determining your strategic versus your fun mix. And after this, I sort of have a what is team building question mark. (laughs) This is an interesting one because me and you, we way back in the day, we used to go to the same barbecues. So we worked for this company and like on Fridays, every once in a while, there'd be a barbecue and me and you would just stay in the office and work (laughs) because you're like, these aren't my friends. Like I'm trying to advance my career. Like I would rather be at home having a barbecue with my friends and with these people that I work with. And so when we organized this event and Dan, we only organized the not fun part. (laughs) Our team organized the fun part. And when our team organized the fun part, like me and you both like I rolled together like, oh gosh, I don't want to like have fun. Like I want to like talk about the mission of this company, our values, the projects that we're doing. We want clear takeaways. Yeah, I want clear takeaways. So, you know, we had the fun day the day before the work day. Me and you were just like eye rolling all the way to the fun day. And then we get through the fun day and me and you were like high five and be like, this is the best day ever. We had more fun than I think the team. I was like, this is what it's all about. So it is interesting that we had so much fun on the fun day, I think. I've kind of always eye rolled. Seriously, I've kind of always eye rolled at the fun day because I've always wanted to just have fun with my friends and family. I didn't necessarily think it was possible to do with my team. I think a lot of it has to do with this defining your culture at the top, though, because one of the things that became apparent is that everybody in our company thinks that growing the company is fun. Yeah. And learning about the company is fun. So being able to share your strategic concerns was actually a really fun process. And I think that's what me and you objected to so many years ago was like, hey, why doesn't anybody think it's fun to sit in this office and work together? Like, isn't that what we're supposed to be doing? I didn't really look at like our fun activities as team building. Like, I think you just get to know people. But team building is what happens when you're learning about people's concerns and their insights and their work. Like, that's team building. That's That was the really meat and potatoes. Although it was enormously fun to do like an escape room, for example, which turns out Arison, the audio engineer of this show, should probably be a Navy SEAL. I mean, <laughs> he was definitely the MVP of that. I think your observation is accurate though, Dan, which is if everyone in the company is like working towards similar goals, everybody understands the mission statement, everybody fits the culture, then these fun days are actually really fun days. Because it's not an escape from work. It's not an excuse to like goof off. It's actually an excuse to be together. And to lean in and to be earnest. Exactly. You know, what we did basically was we did, we'll get to this and what we maybe did wrong, but we did one day of strategic work and one day of fun, in part because we were all at the event all weekend, so we were tired. So the fun day was really fun, and that was sort of as a rest. And then we all got to know each other. Then we did the strategic a few other things you mentioned, I think it's really important to figure out like who's coming and who's not coming. It puts your culture to the test because if you've got a bad egg in this thing, you know that could throw the whole thing off the rails. And so a lot of us for remote companies, you have people that are peripherally involved or people that you're sort of making a bad deal to have them involved because like a lot of remote companies do this where you're like, so-and-so is like such a rock star developer that... We're going to continue to pay Rockstar, but he's a diva. And when he shows up to stuff like this, he like ruins the whole thing. I mean, maybe it'll force you to ask some tough questions. Maybe that's okay that so-and-so is a diva, but maybe they don't get an invite. And so I think that that's really worth considering who comes and who doesn't. In our case, one of the wonderful things about our team is that a lot of people that are part-time, we invited them to this thing. It wasn't like only for full-time because... We want the part-time people to become full-time if they want, you know? And that was part of the aim here is to give people an opportunity to move on up. Yeah, it's interesting to see like who shows up and who doesn't and whether or not it needs to be mandatory. You know, I think a lot of people are listening to this like, oh, I have a family or oh, I have like other commitments. Like it's really hard to carve out time to do these things. And yeah, like most of our team is younger than us. Most of our team doesn't have family. So it's like a little bit easier, I think, and maybe a little bit more accessible. Yeah. You have to make these considerations, though, I think, when you're designing your retreats. You have to be accommodating towards these people to know that like, they're taking time out of their lives. And a lot of people will want to do it, but for a lot of people, it's very hard. Final consideration is to have a strong structure and to keep it private. This is one of the things that uh, your insights, Ian, that I thought was really good is, look, don't rock up to the bitter bean and do this things, pull together some tables. Yeah. This is like kind of an accidental um, success for us, I think, is 
we were already in a hotel, so we just rented out one of the rooms for a little bit longer. It was completely private. So doors closed. It was quiet. Felt like a safe space. I could see a lot of people trying to hack this together in a coffee shop or something like that, where people are constantly getting up, getting food, getting interrupted. Try and create yourself a private space. I think it was really important for us. Yeah. And big shout out to the team. Here we are. There's nine of us strong. We're standing here taking all the credit for this. These companies depend on so many people being on board and giving so much to them. For me, it was the most inspiring highlight of the weekend was getting to work with such an amazing team. You know, So shout out to the team. I think it'd be awkward to list everybody's name and what they do and stuff, but being a part of that for two full days, knowing and feeling that what we're doing matters to each other, identifying each other's strengths and how we can get more out of each other is worth living for. It's worth doing every day, getting up out of bed and coming to the non-office. And I think that's why we started with the culture. We just were lucky enough, Ian, that the people on the team understand the culture and are defining it and are a part of it. And that's not the case for every business. And that's why we feel like that's the top priority. Yeah, I feel like it's one of those documents, Dan, and the reason why we're talking about these retreats is going to be a cornerstone for us. It's one of those documents you open up very often and you make sure like, hey, is the decision I'm making today fit our culture? Is this person that I'm hiring fit this culture? Is this customer even fit this culture? These are all questions that make it easier to operate. It's like having a uniform, literally, right? It's like every morning you get up and you wear the same thing. Like You don't have to think about it. Like We've defined this culture. We've defined what we think is important to us. And if it doesn't fit, then we're not going to do it. I encourage everybody to give it a go. Yeah, to absolutely start with your culture and then start to think about what these retreats might mean for you and your company. Quick thoughts on how we might improve in the future. One is we didn't really do a lot of conflict or critical feedback. I think in part because this was our first meeting that it was so profound just to get it on the table, what everybody was doing, what their concerns were, what how they were like involved in different arms of the business. And it was amazing. I mean, I don't want to say embarrassing. I just want to point out how big a deal this is to everybody listening, that in your remote company, it's very likely that people have very little visibility on like all the different things people are involved in. You can work with someone on a daily basis and be like, oh, I didn't know you like had a weekly call with Dan about AdWords. That kind of stuff pops up everywhere. And so that's all to say that we didn't get a lot into critical feedback about how we can work better. We didn't talk about conflict necessarily, although there isn't an enormous amount to talk about, but I think that that's something we can do more in the future. Yeah, I've seen this implemented like in extremes where like people call each other out for like the worst things in the world. I'm not sure if it needs to go that far, but I do think that there is an opportunity to like have many conflicts and work through them because a lot of times these things fester in any organization, whether it's a virtual organization or an in-person organization, like it's good to air your grievances. Yeah. Two more things. Splitting up the hard work, specifically the strategic conversations that day, Ian, where we went over our principles, we went over our mission, we went around the table and everybody shared what it was they were working on, you know, all that kind of stuff. It just went on longer than the energy capacity of everybody in the room. It's super hard to be locked in for eight hours talking about this Totally. Stuff. Yeah. I think two to three hours break, two to three hours break. Don't overextend yourself. Yes, you're going to have to pay another night at the hotel. But the productivity we found at this last event really starts to drop. We did a session before lunch, a long session. Then we had lunch together. And then we went back and did a session. And that last session, I, I think it was like, again, diminishing returns. Like Everybody was like kind of emotionally drained. So the small insight for me, it was even hard to kind of have lunch together, even though it didn't feel hard in the moment. But in retrospect, I was like, we've been talking for six hours straight. Like, you should go back to your room and like chill face for a little bit, you know? Final thing, Ian, is a little bit more time to focus on strategic next steps. We had eight team members come to our retreat, which did allow us to go the full way around the table and have that strategic discussion for one full day. We had one full fun day which was two fun events and dinner. So I think everybody on the team felt like we needed one more focused strategic session to either break off or to like more clearly define the next steps and key projects 
in fact, what ended up happening is a lot of team members got on like kind of team calls the day after because yeah. it's like, hey, we have to really like define the next steps. Right, we didn't get far enough. Right. So maybe one more day or one more morning would have made sense for our, our retreat. Totally. Now, of course, this is going to work differently at different scales, right? If you've got 25 people on your team, things are going to be different. So we'd love to hear your thoughts on this one. Any parting shots, boss man? This is our first time doing a team retreat. I know already that this team retreat is going to be one of the business highlights for me that our next one, I'm already looking forward to it. I had so much fun and I see so much more potential to get more out of it next time. Here's my takeaway, because I think we've kind of talked a lot about like how it went and the different things that you can do. And honestly, we have limited experience. So here's my takeaway is this new venture that we started, dynamitejobs.co, started as a job board for remote teams, is turned into a placement product. So we actually get people in your company working for you remotely. Like a matchmaking service. A matchmaking service. Here's the irony is that we're talking about these in-person meetups for these companies. That just goes to show you like as a whole, as the internet is evolving, as these companies are evolving, like we figured out how to hire people remotely to do interesting work for us. Now like keeping them engaged, keeping them on tasks, like building a culture around them, like all these things that come with it, I think very few people have figured out. And so I think that that's some of the work that is ahead of us, Dan, for ourselves in this company that we're building at dynamitejobs.co. And then also for the companies that are hiring people remotely. Like This stuff is so new, it feels like to me. And so I feel like we're doing a little bit here to help people define what their company culture might be, how to build a remote team. But I'm really looking forward to like a lot of other content providers, a lot of other companies that have been doing this for longer than we have, like coming out with information around this. All right. Well, if you got any uh, feedback on this, let us know in the comments. Click record on your smartphone. Send us a voicemail. We would love to hear what your thoughts are on building remote team retreats. It's one of these cool things, boss man. It's not that difficult to do, really. We just didn't do it. And it's one of those things you can step up and you can do it and you're not going to regret it. Give it a shot. Let us know how it goes. That's it for this week. Thanks for hosting me at the Ranchette, boss man. It's been wonderful hanging out in your pod studio. Absolutely. We will be back, as always, next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. I think the little boss man, does he just wake up? He's out there. (laughs) Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. All right, first in-person podcast in some time. I'm looking at you. You're looking at me. It's weird. The apprehension when you hit the <laughs> I'm ready button. You're like, uh... First, Ian, I'd like you to take us on a tour of our recording studio today. Ah, yes. Before we started recording, you said to me, the reason I love spending time in this room is that every time I'm out here, I learn something. Yeah. Describe the situation we're in here. We're in my shop, and uh, there's a bunch of uh, half-built cars and motorcycles here. But it's insulated. It's a metal building. There's sound insulation. And one of the bay doors is open. It's a beautiful day here in Austin. And uh, it's one of, my, uh, one of my favorite places to record. Hopefully, as you can see here, this is kind of a work in progress. But hopefully, there will be an official podcasting area in this shop. <laughs> right now, we're kind of doing a little makeshift. But uh, yeah, this is where I record most times. Yeah. And from an outsider, I can just come in and start doing some descriptions because I don't know what half the things in this place are. We've got these giant lifts, which look like we could be in a Jiffy Lube, (laughs) where there's these awesome race cars sitting on them. Like, if I were your son, this is like my dream garage for this kid coming up. This is what happens, though. It's like, I would have, like, given an arm, my left arm, because it's not my dominant arm, obviously. (laughs) I would have given my left arm to have all this stuff. So, of course, now I have all this stuff. And I'm sure my kid's going to be like, eh. It's Your fine. kid's going to be like, hey, uh, could you get me that video game thing? <laughs> <laughs> like, I care nothing about this. We'll see. One other cool thing worth mentioning is that you have these really cool old studio speakers up 
both in the corners and on the work desk here, we were really rocking out to some music before DC Austin, putting on different artists. Yeah. And it turns out that like sometime in the 90s, when everyone started listening to uh, stuff on boomboxes and headphones, that the quality of records really changed dramatically. Yeah, so paint a little picture here, and this is for those that are interested in this kind of stuff. I've started to get into vintage hi-fi and solid-state stuff. So I have a set of uh, old-school JBL monitors, is what they call them, because they were basically in the studio, and it's what they listened to when they were producing music, because it was a close reproduction to the way that the instruments and the artists sounded back in the day. So I have a set of these JBLs, and I've got an old solid-state stereo here, and we're switching between the old JBLs and a newer pair of Allisons. Nobody probably knows what Allisons are, but basically in the 70s and 80s, a lot of like independent people started manufacturing their own speakers. And so it was kind of cool because you didn't have to be Bose, you didn't have to be JBL to produce some pretty cool stereo equipment. So yeah, that night we had a good time. We we're switching between speakers and songs and it's a fun way to spend an evening. And also, Dan, I'll say this, on our team retreat, figured out that a bunch of people in our company are also audiophiles and into music. So that's <laughs> kind of cool. It's like one of these things that that's not an, an explicit, like to join this team, you have to be an audiophile or like music. But we were sitting around lunch and figured out like everybody is like really into music. So that was cool. It's one of those things too. You can see like uh, the parallels to, you know, maybe in the 1970s, starting a speaker company which combined new things was a lot like starting an internet business yeah. nowadays where you know who knows who's going to end up being the Bose or the JBL who's going to emerge but that doesn't mean that Allison didn't have a good time and was maybe very profitable figuring out this brave new world of how we're going to listen to music better while we're doing a little bit of bonus content i think it's worth pointing out that yeah it is convenient for us that you live in Austin Texas and that DC Austin our event for location-independent entrepreneurs every year happens in D.C. Austin. But I also think that this would be the place that you would choose to have that event if you were starting from scratch. Yeah. And that one of the things that becomes more apparent to me every time I come back to Austin is how stunningly clear that is the case right now. I was talking to a mutual friend, regular co-host, Taylor Pearson. He mentioned that he had left to go to another city for a few years and come back to the same apartment complex. And he said the pedestrian traffic had tripled. I just, I wanted to get your thoughts on having lived here. I mean, it, things are moving fast. I mean, maybe five years ago, we would have been saying, oh, a lot of people are going to Portland and a lot of people are going to Atlanta. You know, there's like all these different contenders and maybe it's just my own experience, but coming back here, it really feels like, man, internet business in 2019, bootstrapping in 2019, if in America... Austin seems to be the clear winner in terms of sort of being the, the center of gravity for that sort of thing in America. Yeah, I guess a couple uh, observations. Number one is I'm glad I bought property here when I did because it's quickly becoming unaffordable. In terms of a city where people are doing interesting things, I think it continues to amaze me. Yeah. When I first moved here and actually when we first visited here, there was tons of artists and artisans and little cafes and things like that. And I don't want to say it's gotten more corporate, but it's definitely become, I'd say, more of a force of nature. So I still see artists. I still see people doing kind of artisan things. I also see a lot more corporations. I also see a lot more big businesses moving in here. Heck, I mean, WP Engine has a tall building downtown with their name at the top of it. And so many of us listening to the show remember when that was like a business idea on a blog post. Yeah. You see a lot of those business ideas from our generation defining the landscape here in Austin, Texas. It's all on the ground. And it's not a city, one of the things you pointed out to me, that's geographically constrained. Although there is a strong downtown central focus and the buildings are going upwards. A lot of cities in Texas, they don't grow in all directions. There's various theories on that. Of course, Manhattan and San Francisco are very geographically constrained. And I think a lot of money looks at Austin, Texas. They say they have a killer world-class research university. Mm -hmm. They have a long history of smart people moving there, money in town, entrenched businesses, and everybody just seems to be piling on. The other thing that I mentioned about Austin, Texas is there doesn't seem to be any limits. Like It seems like anything's possible. 
in terms of what you want to do. If you want to have real estate, yeah, it's a little bit more expensive now, but there's still plenty of opportunities. If you want to start a business, that's possible. If you want to start a local business, there's tons of opportunities for that. If you want to start a restaurant, you can do that too. It just seems limitless. When I think about it in in relationship to California, which is the last place that I live full-time, there's so many barriers, barriers to entry, whether it be price, whether it be government. Building codes. Whether it be competition. Yeah. All those things exist. When you come to Austin, it's still like the Wild West. In fact, I've never felt the sense of opportunity in Austin, Texas, anywhere else in America. When you go to Asia, you feel it. I don't feel it anywhere else in America. There is a strong sense of community here between entrepreneurs, small businesses, but then there's also this amazing sense of opportunity. One final insight or reflection, similar to the experience of living in Asia, I feel like every night of the week, I got something social with a group of entrepreneurs. It's, it's exhausting. And the other night we were at this really cool party and there was a lot of really sharp, wealthy, interesting, thoughtful, creative people there. And it was a great evening. But you know the thing that stuck out to me the most about it? What's that? We were the oldest people there. Yeah. <laughs> that part sucked. I was just like, man, this is not a room that I generally find myself in. I was always the young person hanging out with the old people. Now all of a sudden I find myself in the room shocked to discover. Another thing that's worth mentioning about Austin that's different about New York and San Francisco and all these other places in America is that everyone is generally available. And I can't say this enough because I know I've mentioned it on the podcast before, but the weirdest thing in Austin, Texas is like, hey, Dan, you want to hang out? I just met you. It's like, cool. It's like, how about tomorrow? Like tomorrow is a real option. And relationships get forged fast like they do in, in Asia. Whereas like in New York- Or in up and coming cities, you could say, another way to put it. Exactly. And whereas like in New York, San Francisco, everyone is much more siloed. Everybody has a schedule. Everybody has a routine. Everybody is like very interested in sticking to it. You have to when you live in New York, too. I mean, that's the culture of living there. Totally. I mean, you just don't stray past your block. But here in Austin, yeah, the traffic has definitely gotten worse in the last five years. But the option to go travel to see people still exists, and it's very easy. I can still go and see you downtown, although I live outside of downtown, and like have a whole day to myself. One of the final things I've mentioned, it's just been interesting week of insights. One is, you know, all the things that long-term residents complain about Austin. There's some legitimate complaints about all the growth and things, but these are things that are all upsides to me as an outsider. Like, Agree. I always thought, you know, Austin, Texas, interesting place. Like everybody's accepted, lots of creative people and stuff, but not really a real city, not city enough for me. And that's changing. That's really cool. Like lots of people with different diverse backgrounds. A lot of people complain about people from the coast. Heaven forbid Californians and New Yorkers would come here. I love a place that has Californians and New Yorkers. These are some of the most interesting people in our country. So it's just really awesome to say that the person that would have moved to Brooklyn three years ago is now all of a sudden really considering, or the business is really considering moving here to Austin. That's rad. The other thing is bumping into a lot of people that are part of the nomadic lifestyle, the remote business location independent scene we talk about. A lot of people mention that you know when they go and settle in you know, New York they go and settle in San Francisco, they feel a little bit strange because they don't really want to drop their backpack roots. You know, They still want to do summer in Europe. They still want to do this. And a couple of people have noted to me this week, like, that's what Austin people do. Like, that's, that's what happens here, or that's what the scene does here. Yeah, I, I definitely leave during the summer. <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> the weather's pretty rough, I hear, by all accounts. Like, it's hot. <laughs> One of the things to consider is, yeah, the weather's rough for three months. It's hot. Like you don't want to be outside most of the time for the other nine months. Pretty amazing. Like shorts most of the time. Yeah. Not much of a fierce winter, so to speak. And lots of sun, which is nice. 